From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The Supreme Court hears arguments on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Welcome. I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, columnists Alicia Finley and Kim Strassel. Welcome to you both. When President Biden announced last summer his plan to forgive $10,000 per person in student loans for people earning up to $125,000 a year. One of the big questions was whether any opposed party would have legal standing to challenge it. And yet here we are Tuesday. The Supreme Court has just heard oral arguments in a case that could strike down the debt forgiveness program. And let's start with that standing question. I thought this was an interesting back and forth between Justice Samuel Alito and the lawyer representing the federal government, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelegar. I understand a big thrust of your argument to be that Missouri lacks standing because Mohila is, is separately incorporated. But why should that formal distinction govern the determination of injury in fact? So we think that the injury in fact analysis here has both a factual and a legal component. Um, in the first place, of course, we're making arguments that even if there's a financial injury to Mohila, the state hasn't carried its its burden to show that that will have downstream effects on the state or that those would be cognizable. And Mohila hasn't paid money into the relevant state fund for the past 15 years. It said that further payments were not deemed probable even before this plan was announced. But even putting the, the factual discrepancies to the side, there's a fundamental problem as a matter of law with the claim of injury. And I think it arises directly from two sets of black letter law principles. The first is that the whole point of incorporation is that you're creating a separate legal person with its own rights and interests. And Missouri has derived substantial benefits from structuring Mohila that way. And the second is the basic Article Three principle that a party has to come to court and assert her own rights and interests. Right. She yeah, can't invoke I, the interests you know, of a third party. Alicia, I hope you can remind us what exactly is Mohila, how Missouri has set up this system, and what do you make of this statement? question. So Mohila is a federal student loan servicer that was established by the actually state legislature many years ago. And there are a number when we talk about federal student loan servicers, there are a number of them. But basically what they do is service student loans. You know, they don't originate the loans per se, but if at least at this point, all of the students who are borrowing are borrowing directly from the federal government. You know, they help coordinate and ensure that students, you know, repay their loans. If they have any questions, they answer those questions and such, and then they get a fee from the government for servicing those loans. So Mohila, or Missouri argues that because of the student loan forgiveness, Mohila will generate less fees. And as a result, this will hurt Missouri because under the law that the Missouri legislature passed, Mohila is required to make certain payments. I don't know exactly how much, but payments back to the state treasury. And it also funds scholarships for in-state students to attend in-state colleges. And so therefore, Missouri actually has a concrete interest and it could suffer a concrete injury because of the student loan forgiveness. And through standing that you actually have to show an injury concrete, in fact, particularized, can't just be a hypothetical injury. And I think Missouri has, you know, satisfied the burden of proof here that it will suffer, in fact, an injury. I think the Solicitor General is being a little tricky here, is trying to distinguish, you know, the incorporation argument that just because it is not directly a state agency, that therefore, you know, it should 
have to sue in its own right. But I think if you actually look back in court precedents, that's not necessarily the case. I think that I recall looking back, and this was back in the fall when this issue came up, and CalPERS, public pension fund in California, is, you know, doesn't California can sue on behalf of CalPERS, even though it's a separate entity, but it's still an arm of the state. I think there's a lot of skepticism, I think we heard from the justices, that they actually are important or matter, in fact. And so it does seem likely that at least some of the justices, the justices probably who agreed to hear the case, are interested in getting to the merits. And there, I think it's interesting to spin out a little bit. President Biden, the Biden administration, has justified this loan forgiveness under the 2003 HEROES Act, the Higher Education Relief Opportunity for Students Act. And I will just read the operative section and some ellipses here to leave out a little bit of the legalese, but it says, notwithstanding any other provision of law, the Secretary of Education may waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs as the Secretary deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency to provide the waiver or modifications. And so, Kim, part of what the justices were wrestling with is whether what the Biden administration is proposing to do here fits within the meaning of that statute and what Congress meant when it gave the Secretary of Education the power to waive or modify student loans in the HEROES Act. And let's listen to a bit of Justice Sonia Sotomayor asking a question on that topic. The chief mentioned the quarter of trillion dollars or the half a trillion dollars. Um, how do you deal with that? Because that seems to favor the argument that this is a major question. Yes, Justice Sotomayor. So, of course, we acknowledge that this is an economically significant action. But I think that that can't possibly be the sole measure for triggering application of the major questions doctrine. In prior cases, the court has pointed to economic and political significance, but it's also reviewed a litany of additional factors that have demonstrated that based on common sense understandings of how Congress is likely to legislate, the agency is claiming extravagant regulatory authority that it doesn't actually have. And I think if the court were to just look at costs alone, it would take the major questions doctrine outside of that extraordinary case because national policies these days frequently do involve more substantial costs or trigger political controversy. Kim, what do you make of the idea here that the Solicitor General is raising that forgiving student loans in mass like this doesn't qualify as a major question under the Supreme Court's precedence that Congress needs to speak clearly on? It's no big deal. You know, the Biden administration spends so much money. But a couple of hundred billion dollars more. I mean, it's really an extraordinary argument. He actually had the audacity to use the word common sense in that phrase, because I would think that most people who would look at this think that it's fairly common sense that the president doesn't have the ability to just wave a magic wand and take over Congress's job of appropriating money. Look, I think it's worthwhile stepping back here and just to round this back to what Alicia was saying on standing. If they can get this thrown out by arguing that the plaintiffs in this case don't even 
even have a right to bring the suit. They can avoid getting to the merit question because the merit question is so hugely stacked against them. You have this legislation from 20 years ago, the Higher Education Relief Opportunity for Students Act. And it was so clearly designed to aid students that were in the military, to allow, if necessary, some waiver or modification of provisions for holders of student loans that somehow got swept into a war or a military operation. And yet what happened here at the beginning of the pandemic allowed for some forbearance of student loans in the beginning of the emergency. That ended. And then both the Trump and the Biden administration reached back to find this law from 20 years ago. Biden, you know, burrowing even a bigger hole in it, claimed that he was able to forgive all of this student debt. Obviously, this is a major question. If the administration or this administration or any other administration can simply look back into some law that had nothing to do with the emergency at hand and claim that because that word is present, that they can declare such and just run around Congress and appropriate, you know, a half a trillion dollars for some sort of program that they see a benefit for, but which Congress will not pass, that's a huge problem for the separate of powers. Of course, the court is going to have to look at that and understand the implications of saying yes to this. And again, that just gets back to why there's such a focus. They are keeping their fingers crossed that maybe they can get this tossed either on a a mootness claim or on a standing claim, because I think the clear facts of this particular case are so glaring, the problem of the merits. Alicia, could you give us a little bit more background on the major questions doctrine? Because as I understand, This is a relatively new development the Supreme Court is putting forward, and it was remarkable in this oral argument to hear the Solicitor General make the case that the major questions doctrine doesn't apply to benefits programs. And what she said was that if you give the administrative agencies the power to rewrite law on major questions is the way I guess I would frame it, probably not the way the Solicitor General would frame it. But if you give the administrative agencies the ability to address these major questions on topics that affect liberty interests, where somebody could be committing a crime or not, depending on how the agency interprets the law, there's a heightened review standard. And the argument she was making here was that that's not true for benefits programs. We're just talking about the amount of money that the federal government is going to shovel out the door or not, as the case may be. Yeah, so the major questions doctrine, the left likes to say that this is a new doctrine, but really it isn't new. It goes back several decades, you know, back to the 1990s to a case, you know, MCI versus AT&T, which was regarding an FCC waiver. And it's expanded upon this major, you know, the major questions doctrine in subsequent cases, often involving environmental regulation. And there, I think there was an FDA case back in 2000 that involved the tobacco industry and the FDA's authority to regulate it under its drugs and devices. But really, in the last few years, you've seen a more clearer distillation of an articulation of what it is, in particular with the eviction moratorium case, the federal in which the CDC claimed authority to impose an eviction moratorium during the emergency, also 
citing public health emergency powers. And then you saw it again with the OSHA mandate, vaccine mandate for workers, which also basically claimed emergency powers to impose vaccine mandate on most workers in the private economy. And the Supreme Court blocked both of those ultimately on a statutory reading of the text, but also based on the major questions doctrine that the Congress did not give executive clear authority to impose these rules. And again, in last summer in the West Virginia EPA, which was considered a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court re-emphasized that the executive needs clear authorization from Congress when undertaking issues or resolving taking actions that have such huge political and economic significance. The court specified it more clearly what could be considered a major questions doctrine and provide more guidance to the lower courts. But I think on however you interpret or however you read the court's decision last in West Virginia v. EPA, this is student loan forgiveness is a major question. And it's a little puzzling how the Solicitor General can argue otherwise. Hang tight. We'll be right back. You're listening to Potomac watch from the Wall Street Journal. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I think this is a great case to discuss when we're thinking about how modern United States government has come to work, though, because if the administrative agencies get this amount of leeway to forgive any loans, if there's any type of emergency, you can imagine a president declaring a climate emergency or finding some sort of hook that he can try to hang whatever policy he independently wants on top of. And notable in the last day or so, there is news stories now about conditions that the federal government wants to put on funding for the CHIPS Act. This is money that is supposed to go to make U.S. semiconductors competitive internationally. And here's the line from the New York Times story. It says, the Commerce Department will announce that any semiconductor manufacturer seeking a slice of nearly $40 billion in new federal subsidies will need to essentially guarantee a high-quality child care for workers who build or operate a plant. And Kim, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this falls into a major questions doctrine thing, if there's some language in the CHIPS Act that says that the Commerce Secretary is empowered to put whatever terms and conditions on this money as she sees fit. But I look forward to learning more about the details here. If they're talking about guaranteeing child care for workers who build the plant, does that mean every single concrete subcontractor that works on this issue, electrical supplier? I mean, Kim, if you can put that kind of terms 
on congressional spending without any sort of congressional authorization, then I struggle to come up with what terms you couldn't create. Remember the history here. Biden administration, since the moment it took office, has been attempting to pass through Congress what are essentially a number of new entitlement plans, one of which is essentially free childcare. And even its own Senate Democrats wouldn't go along with that, so he didn't get it done via a legislative proposal. So now instead we have a completely separate piece of legislation in which the administration is dangling $40 billion, which was clearly appropriated by Congress to encourage chip makers to build more plants here in the United States. I can argue whether or not that was a good idea, but that money is now there, and it's going to erect this crazy new claim that in order for companies to access it, they must either build company child care centers near or in their facilities or subsidize flat out the costs that workers must pay to, in order to obtain child care to come work at the place. God knows how much this is going to cost. Also, what it would do to the child care sector, which is an entirely different question, too. Suddenly you have all this money potentially driving up prices in it. But the bigger question, which you pointed out, Kyle, is that under this rationale, anytime Congress fails to specifically outlaw the purpose of a certain amount of money, then apparently the administration is free to use that money for that purpose, which is a, a nuts way of thinking about this. I mean, is Congress just supposed to sit around writing pages upon pages of rules saying that you cannot use the money for this, you may not use the money for this, you may not use it for this, except for that, you know, if it forgets one, well then is that still open? I mean, it kind of flips things on its head. It used to be Congress specifically said, here's what the money is for, and if they didn't specifically say that, then it couldn't be used for another purpose. This is making it into the entirely opposite approach. Alicia, what do you make about this issue with the CHIPS Act? And similar to the student loan case, I mean, I can imagine that maybe the Biden administration would have a legal problem here. But again, I'm scratching my head to think of who would sue over this in a way that you would get a case that comes into the courts. I think that's right. I mean, you could potentially get a semiconductor firm who applies for a grant and then is rejected based on one of these criteria that the administration has attached, such as the child care funding. There's some others, including basically no buybacks. A lot of what the administration is doing is doing under the cover of essentially guidance, not really formal regulation. And so it's basically saying that we're going to favor or give preference to certain companies based on that meet these criteria. And these applications are going to be evaluated behind closed doors. A little bit like, you know, a co-op application. So when you apply to join a co-op, you have to fill out an application and they evaluate it. But they don't ever tell you why you didn't get selected or why you're not allowed to buy or rent in a place. They just reject you. And that's essentially what the administration will probably do. It'll pick certain applications or reject others, but won't necessarily explicitly detail why they're picking and choosing winners and losers, which will make it harder to mount a legal challenge. There could be an issue with non-delegation doctrine, which is a very old, again, 80 or 90 year old doctrine that Congress can't give 
just delegated spending powers or other powers to the administration to know exactly what it wants. But that raises the question that you raised is, do you really expect Congress to rule out all these crazy things? I mean, it did put certain conditions on the grant funding through in the CHIPS bill, like you can't use the money directly for stock buybacks and limitations on their ability to invest in China for advanced manufacturing. But again, you can't expect Congress to basically rule out every kind of restriction or every kind of requirement that any kind of administration could think of. Kim, circling back here, we'll give you the last word on the student loan forgiveness plan. Do you foresee, given what we know about the Biden administration's arguments and how some of the oral advocacy went today, do you foresee a typical 6-3 conservative liberal split here on the court or something more messy? Or maybe one of the liberal justices is convinced to go against the plan that it goes beyond what Congress meant when it passed the HEROES Act? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the big question, the big hurdle here in the beginning is going to be the standing question, because that has been one in which justices sometimes are a little bit more over the map on in terms of how strict they're going to be, because this is a very vital principle. I agree with Alicia that I think that Missouri and also a couple of the other states that are part of this, Nebraska and Arkansas, have shown standing. We'll see if the justices agree. If this is one area where the Supreme Court, at least in times in the past, has been a little bit more willing to go there when it's pretty obvious that one of the branches is overstepping its boundaries and out of its lane. One of the cases that I remember very specifically was Noel Canning. President Obama declared the Senate in recess and so that he could name his own people to the National Labor Relations Board. And that was a 9-0 decision from the court striking down that move and invalidating, in essence, the people that had been placed on that regulatory body. I mean, it's a different principles that were at stake. But the bigger point being that members of the court were willing to say, no, you as the executive branch do not have the ability to do this and declare the Senate in recess. Maybe a little bit more cut and dry than this one, but this is pretty cut and dry too. So I will have to wait and see, but it may be an opportunity for an even more unanimous court on this question. Thank you, Kim and Alicia. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, and we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.